Our sermon text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. It can also be found in your pew Bible, pages 811 and 812. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in your is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray God. Father, we have uh, every reason to be supremely confident uh, that you will help us now in these minutes. Uh, we've already heard it this morning in Bob's prayer. Um, if you're for us, who can be against us? You'd, if you didn't spare your own son, uh, but were willing to deliver him up for us all, then we have every right and a solid warrant to expect that everything else we need, you will graciously give us, not reluctantly. And so now we need your help to, to know your word and to know uh, and recognize your voice as you speak to each one of us uh, individually from it and through it. We need your help to recognize and see the beauty of the Lord Jesus and your own trustworthiness through him to us. And, Father, there are those who need the gift of new life in Christ here as well. And if you didn't already spare your son and you sent him into the world, Father, we believe that you still this morning are are not only uh, able to save but ready and willing to do it. And so we ask you to glorify yourself by doing it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's, uh, there's been a progression over the last several weeks as uh, we've been working our way uh, through Matthew 6. Um, there's been one uh, overarching theme, which is that Jesus has been uh, teaching his disciples and us that every aspect of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ must be viewed through the lens of God's fatherhood. So uh, that's the preeminent uh, thing that Jesus keeps coming back to over and over again in Matthew 6, this astonishing reality that those who believe in Jesus Christ, as the, as the Apostle John says in, in uh, John chapter 1, that those who believe in Jesus Christ and have received him, who believe in his name and have received him for all that he is and all that he's done, then to those people, and on that basis, Jesus then gives the authority uh, to be the children of God and to have God as their father. That's an amazing thing, because that means that if, if you don't have Christ as your Savior, you do not have God as your Father. So none of the promises that uh, Jesus is uh, sharing with his disciples here belong to, to anyone who doesn't have uh, Jesus as their Savior. God is not the Father of human beings in general. He is only the Father of those who have who have believed in Jesus Christ and have received him. So that's the first thing it means. The second thing it means is that, is that every aspect of your life now is defined, if you're in Christ, by the fatherhood of God. Which is an amazing thing because he's a beautiful and gracious and mighty father. And so we've, we've thought over the last several weeks about the power of his approval that's what we called uh, our Father's eye. And then last week we talked about the great privilege of, of prayer and communication with uh, God. And we talked about our Father's ear, what it means to have our Father's ear. And then this morning, uh, our passage uh, presents us with the question of what does it mean to view the future through the lens of God's fatherhood? The future is a very powerful force in our lives, isn't it? I mean, we live in the present, but we're, our minds are either, you know, going backwards a lot or certainly going forward a lot. We look back and we have regrets. We look forward and we have dreams. Well, we have not only regrets in the past, we have regrets and we have things to rejoice over, right? But it's a mixture. It's also a mixture as we stand in the present and think about the future. There are visions that we have of, of dreams, but there are also some nightmare scenarios that burden us in the present, aren't there? And what Jesus is doing in this passage, uh, very much like we saw last week with prayer, is he's showing us that there are only two ways to approach the future. Just as there are only two ways to think about prayer, there's a fatherless way of approaching the future. And that's going to be rooted in insecurity, and it's going to produce anxiety and worry. And the alternative is to approach the future in a father-filled way, to see the future not through the eyes of our own abilities, but through our father's eyes. And that's an approach to the future that is defined by security and faith. And these are radically different ways of approaching the future. 
Very practical. I'm sure you felt the practical impact of the passage as Paul was reading it. There's nobody who escapes the, the, uh, the relevance of these exhortations. And, and these, these ways of looking at the future are so radically distinct. And we're going to think about the contrast this morning under three uh, different headings. The first is the, the size of the future which is very different between both of them, then the power of the future, and then the hope for the future. So the size, the power, and the hope for the future. Very different between the two. Let's think first about the size of the future. Uh, Because what Jesus is really showing us is that there are two radically different ways of thinking about the the significance of the future and therefore of human life uh, between the fatherless uh, approach to the future and the father-filled approach to the future. Think first about the size of the fatherless uh, future that Jesus is describing. And it's a very small future. You notice it has one purpose and one purpose only, survival. It's just survival. It's the Hunger Games. That's what it is. It's just survival. You notice how Jesus uh, identifies this uh, very uh, forcefully for his disciples. Uh, Survival is the preoccupation, the obsession of a fatherless view of the future. And, And Jesus prohibits his disciples twice from being caught up in that obsession. You see it both in verse 25 and verse 31. He says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? He's saying, don't you dare define your life as a child of God by being obsessed with your survival. That is not what it means to be a child of God. That vision of life is way too small. And he says the same thing in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Do you feel the panic in the, in the repetition of the questions? Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. If, you, if that is your dominant question, if those are your dominant front order, first order obsessions, you're operating with a very small view of the future and a very small view of life. Both, you've just, the irony is that in your obsession with those things, if you give in to that obsession, which, by the way, he says very clearly, is the obsession of the world, right? That's what he means in verse 32, and he says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. That's the rest of the world. He's saying, if you give in to that, you are ironically shrinking life and shrinking your view of the future. That's really the force of his question in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And of course, the answer is yes, Right? We know that. And the future, right? The future, if that's all you're concerned with, if survival is your main imperative, then the way you measure the future is in decades at best. And that's a very small future. And the net effect of all of this is that Jesus is saying, you guys are not animals Your life is different from the animals. That's why Jesus says, I want you to think about the birds of the air. I want you to look at them. And I want you to think about the grass of the field and the lilies of the field. But I don't want you to equate yourself with them. I want you to learn from them. 
Because you are worth more than the birds that God feeds, and you are worth more than the grass of the field and the lilies of the field. You are more valuable than they are. You are not the same as the animals. Human life is about more than the satisfaction of your appetites. Now, friends, that's all the world tells you you are. That the highest explanation for a human being, the highest aspiration of a human being, is your appetites and the satisfaction of them. And your, your ability to survive, oh, maybe 10 decades? It's a very small view of life. It's a very small view of the future. It's a very inadequate explanation for the life that I live and that I see. You know, I was thinking about this and I was listening to some music and I thought, listen, how do you explain Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? How do you explain that? Does Beethoven's Ninth Symphony exist because Ludwig needed to put bread on the table? No. Is the Sistine Chapel painted on the roof by Michelangelo just because Michelangelo needed money and needed food to put on his table and needed his appetite satisfied? No. Did Ansel Adams take those pictures and work in the dark room just so he could earn money? No. You see, even you, even if you are not a Christian, you know, you know that the human heart, because your own human heart operates this way, you know that the human heart has, operates from a much bigger vision and sense of appetite, if you will, and longings than just physical ones. And Jesus is putting his finger on it, and he is saying, don't Follow the world in the way you think about the size of your life or the size of the future. Survival is way too small of an objective. You have to be thinking. You have the privilege of thinking about much bigger questions because you are the children of God. So friends, how big is the future that you're living for? That's what Jesus is putting right before his disciples. And how big is the future that the world is inviting you to pursue? See, because the contrast is really set out, if it's going to be summarized in any single verse, it's verse 33, isn't it? And Jesus says, don't settle for such a small view of life and such a small view of the future. No, no, don't do that. Don't think about decades. Think about the kingdom of God, verse 33. But seek first... Right? Be seeking. That's the force of the command. It's in the present tense. So, but keep seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's just, that just blows my mind. You see what he's doing? He's saying the way you fight a small ambition is with a much bigger ambition. And, and as I thought about this, uh, I just thought about how many things in life how many desires in life we pursue toward the future that we never end up getting or that are just uncertain? Will we be healthy? Will we be wealthy? Will we be married? Will we have a family? Will we be successful in our work? Will we be able to have children? Will, there, will we be able to see our children grow up? 
Will we have uh, uh, the education we desire? What, all those ambitions. Will we have the opportunities that we want? So many things that we spend so much energy and passion in pursuing for such an uncertain return. And in many, in many ways, God is so exceedingly gracious with us. We're willing to settle for so little. And, and many of us have a lot of things on, these lists, on this list. But to be satisfied with those things and to not accept access to and membership in the kingdom of God means that we don't know what real value is. You see, alongside all the uncertainty of those pursuits in life, Jesus sets before us an absolute certainty of membership in the kingdom of God. You know, we can pursue all those other things in vain. We can pour our lives into those things in pursuing them. And we can never reach them. Spend our whole life, 70, 80, 90, 100 years pursuing these things, never get them. Certainly never keeping them forever uncertainty, insecurity, never, never having any assurance that we've gotten them. And alongside that, Jesus says, but I tell you, I tell you, I set before you a future so big and so beautiful. This is the future for which you were created. It is to be part of God's kingdom. And if you seek this, you will not seek in vain Not because you're good, but because God's character as the father of his children will never let his children down. He will never pull something back that he has held forth for his children. Friends, you you can seek fame and fortune and comfort and survival and pleasure all your life, and they'll never be stable if you even have them for 20 minutes or even 20 years but eventually they'll all crumble into dust. Or you can have the eternal kingdom of God and his righteousness. You can have that as the defining interest of your life and future through Jesus Christ. And you can never lose it. No no rust will ever destroy it. No moth will ever destroy it. No thief can come in and take it away from you because God himself has given it to you. And you own it through Jesus Christ. Don't settle, Jesus says, for such a small view of human life or human future. If you're a child of God, set your sights on much bigger things. And if God has given that to you, the other stuff is just details. Would he give you the kingdom and not keep you alive? That's the logic. So let's think about the power of the future. That's the size of the future. There's no comparison, right? And then there's the power of the future. What's the power of the fatherless future? Well, it's very powerful, isn't it? And the power of the fatherless future is fear. It's insecurity. It is uncertainty about the future, 
The energy that drives the fatherless future that Jesus is describing here in Matthew 6 is a very powerful energy. It captures the mind. It captures the heart. It, 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 it determines courses of action. It shapes decisions. It shapes dreams. And it is nothing more than the power of insecurity and uncertainty. It is worry. And Jesus is saying that worry is utterly to approach the future and to think about the future with worry is to regard the future fatherlessly. Worry is not a virtue. To worry is to entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of God. Because what you're saying, Jesus says, is God is not a father to me. It's a very serious thing, and we're all guilty of it, friends. So there is nobody in this room who worries in an okay way. To worry is not just a problem of self-control. To worry is a worship disorder. It is idolatry because it is to entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you don't worry enough. If you're a non-Christian, I need to say this to you. You do not worry enough. It's not funny. You don't worry enough. You think that the greatest issue in your life it's whether you're going to have enough money. But you don't know. You don't believe that one day you're going to stand before God and have to give an account for your life, and he's holy, and he has no room in his kingdom for the lofty pride of the human heart, and that needs to make you worry. If that doesn't make you worry, pray that God will make you alive. The recession, bankruptcy, atomic bombs, cancer, physical injury, those are all serious things, but they are not as serious as standing before God unprotected by a righteousness not of your own. Friends, Worry is the symptom of a fatherless approach to the future. Worry and faith both look at the future. Faith looks at the future. I am not saying you're not supposed to think about the future. That's not what God's Word says. But worry looks at the future and responds with fear because the worrier, the worrier is believing that everything about his or her welfare depends upon him or her. And there is no father. Faith looks at the future, even the uncertainties of the future, and knows that those are in the hands of another. Faith is not optimism. Faith is very different from optimism. Optimism is confidence in an outcome. Gamblers are optimistic. But children of God 
trust not in an outcome. They trust a person, right? And so the vision here is radically different. Jesus is such a wise pastor of his people. He knows, he knows that even those who are his disciples, why does he have to tell his disciples three times in the span of not many verses, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious? Why? Because we're anxious, because we're anxious, because we're anxious. Because we get vulnerable, because we're vulnerable, we're vulnerable, we're vulnerable. He knows, right? He knows. The Christian is not carefree. The Christian is not unburdened by the future. What distinguishes the Christian from the worrier is that the Christian doesn't approach his or her worries and burdens with thoughts that are unworthy of God. The Christian takes those burdens, takes those worries, and lifts them up in a worship that is worthy of their father and says, I trust you. I do this under the shadow of the cross. You've already demonstrated your infinite bona fides to me in the sacrifice of your son. So don't think that what Jesus is saying is you should walk around happy, clappy, if you do that, that means you're not, you don't have your eyes open in this world. <laughs> Jesus wasn't happy clappy in Gethsemane. Okay? So, friends, the power of the future that is father-filled is, is security. It's not insecurity. It's security. And it's grounded in confidence in the Father's control and in his generosity. I find it so interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, we get to this section. We get to this section. I don't know if you noticed it, but if you read the, through the whole Sermon on the Mount again today, what you're going to notice is that when you get to this section, this is the, there's all, all of a sudden Jesus starts asking his disciples questions. Boom, 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 boom. And there are five questions here that he asks his disciples. And there are no questions elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount except, except starting here and going into chapter 7. And I think, it's, I think that's telling for a couple of reasons. One is, I think because as he's coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right, he's driving home the implications and he wants his disciples to reflect. But I think it's also significant that in the context of talking about anxiety, Jesus asks questions. Why? Because what happens when you get anxious? You start spinning, don't you? And these questions are like breaks on a car or a heart or a mind that is careening out of control. And this shows us, his model here shows us that worry is ultimately, uh, fatherless worrying is ultimately the fruit, not of so much of fatherless feeling, but of fatherless thinking. And how critical it is for you to engage your mind with the gospel and the truths of the gospel as a Christian I mean, Jesus gives us five questions, verses 25, 26, 27, 28, and 30, and then two commands, 26 and 28, to slow us down. He wants us to reflect the mind is a critical part of the Christian life. And your father wants your mind filled with thoughts of who he is. And so Jesus has this great logic of the kingdom, right, that he gives us uh, in verses 32 and 33. You don't have to be like the Gentiles who seek after all these things, and your, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. 
I kept wanting, as I read this this week over and over again, I kept wanting to put the word but in the middle of verse 32. I think it's, I think it's really interesting that it's not but. See the things I spend my time on? Listen, the way this should read is, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I think that the fact that it's and means he's just, he's just highlighting the contrast. You, you let the world live the way it's going to live. But your Father and your Father will take care of all these things for you. He knows you need them. He's to be trusted. Therefore, right? Therefore, you're freed up because of his character to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then to trust him that all these other things are going to be added to you. And Jesus' prescription is to think about these things. Use your mind. Think about the logic of the cross. If he did that, he's going to make sure that you have dinner. And then he says, go take a walk. Go outside. Take a walk. Close your Bible. Turn the television off. Turn the computer off. Get off Facebook. Go take a walk and look. Really pay attention to the birds of the air. Look up. And consider the grass of the field. Really think about the grass of the field. Nothing extraordinary in either one. Right? And he says, engage your heart and your mind in these things. Open your eyes. See, when Jesus looked at the world, he saw, what he saw with his eyes was that, that, that everywhere the human being is surrounded by evidence of God's generosity. Everywhere. That if we would stop and think about the way the world works and what we see, particularly in nature, we would be full up of proof of the Father's generosity and His goodness as trustworthiness. He says, if you think about the birds, look at the birds of the air. He says, how in the world do they get fed? How do they survive? They survive because your Father feeds them. Now, lest you think that Jesus is the implication of Jesus' teaching. I know you guys well enough to know that some of you are rascals. And I know some of you are waiting to hit me in the door with this question. So I'm just taking it away from you right now. Sorry. Some of you are saying, okay, Francis, well, if that's true, then that means I don't have to work, right? Wrong. How does the father feed the birds? Does he um, let them stay in their nests and say, fly over with a holy helicopter and then drop the food into their beaks? Right? That's not how it works, right? How does he feed the birds? Well, let me tell you how he feeds the birds. He feeds the birds by equipping them to be birds, he gave them wings. So they have to fly. If they fly, they'll get their food. He, he gave them certain appetites, certain uh, capacities and abilities. They know where the, where the berries are. They know where the worms are. They have certain kinds of eyesight, so they know where the fish are. They've got to be 
who God made them to be as birds, and through that equipping and making and designing, they will be fed by the Father. The same thing is true of you and me. This is not a license to passivity. And then, think about the grass. I love this one. Oh, if we, if we just would look at the things around us. <laughs> Jesus says, uh, consider the, grass, the lilies of the field or the, the grass of the field. And he's saying, if you think about it, it's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Because a single flower, a single wildflower, that's, that's really the word that gets translated lilies. It's a more generic term. A single wildflower has been clothed arrayed by God with more splendor than Solomon at the peak of his glory. One is a man-made glory, and the other is a God-given glory. Jesus says he wants us to think about the grass of the field if we're going to know the Father's generosity. So I decided I was going to do that this week. Because I, I do, if you go to my house, there is only a single blade of grass in my front yard. <laughs> so I only had to think about one. It was very simple. And I looked at that blade of grass, and I said, well, why is it alive? Certainly not because of me, okay? We, we eliminate that, that hypothesis immediately. But that, that blade of grass is alive uh, for, because photosynthesis exists, Right? Well, what's photosynthesis? I'm driving without a license right now, so be careful. Okay? Well, photosynthesis, that that plant will not live unless unless photosynthesis, that blade of grass will not live unless there's photosynthesis. Photosynthesis doesn't work unless there's light. If there's no light, there's no life. Well, where does the light come from? Well, the light comes from the sun. So no sun, no light, no life, right? No blade of grass. Well, where, how does the sun produce light? Well, through fusion. Hydrogen atoms under great pressure are pushed together and made into helium atoms, and energy is released, and part of that energy is the form, comes out in the form of photons, light energy, that then travels 93 million miles at about 186,000 miles a second, takes about eight minutes, and then it hits that blade of grass on my lawn. That's how that blade of grass lives. And the reason that fusion happens and the reason there's light is because every second that there's light, God supplies 700 million tons of hydrogen to be fused on the sun. Friends, we know way more than Jesus' disciples did, at least in terms of information, but we are often very much less wise than they are. If we thought about that, we wouldn't doubt the goodness of God. And friends, that's why you young people, that's why a lot of you young people need to be scientists. 
So you can teach the, the songwriters and the poets and the novelists about the greatness of God. And that's why the rest of you young people need to be songwriters and poets and artists and photographers and teachers so you can take the facts and turn them into worship. Finally, let's think about the hope for the future and the difference, radical difference between these two. If you, if you, if you approach the future fatherlessly, here's, you've only got one hope. Control, right? I mean, nobody likes insecurity. The response to insecurity is security. The response to uncertainty is certainty. That's what we want, okay? And what this means is if you are living toward the future and you're doing it in a fatherless way, that means your only hope, your only hope is in your ability to control the variables. So you will only have as much security as you can exert control over those variables and uncertainties. And Jesus identifies two main ways that we try to do that. One is through worrying itself, and the other is through money and possessions. And he exposes the weakness of both. I don't have time to go into these at great length, but I want you to see what he does with both false hopes. First, there's the, the false hope of worry and anxiety. Verse 27, I know that sounds weird that, that worry, that I would describe worry as a hedge against the, the future, but you know that there are people who think that worrying is almost a life survival skill. Listen, I used to, when I practiced law, I got paid to worry for other people. No, I'm not kidding. Right? So it's very lucrative if you do it well. But we also fool ourselves into thinking that if we just think about all the variables, and if we stay consumed with all the questions that relate to protecting myself, protecting my family, only putting the right food in and keeping the bad food out, that if we dominate our lives with those questions, and many of us are dominated by those questions, that then we'll preserve our lives. And Jesus says, you can worry all you want, not a cubit, 18 inches, will you add to your lifespan. Worry is the most unproductive activity of the human heart. Stonewall Jackson, great quote. Some of you know this quote. I love it. Maria will often quote it back to me. My religion teaches me that I am as safe on the battlefield as I am in my bed. God has determined the hour of my death, and I therefore do not concern myself with it. That's how Christian talks. Money also fails. Money fails for two reasons. It's vulnerable itself, right? I mean, you can stock up all the possessions you want, but there's moth, there's decay, there's rust, and there are thieves. So, you know, you could say you got a burglar alarm and you got a big portfolio and you got the best broker in the history of the world, and friends, you have so little control over that. I was just reading this week, uh, you know, there's a little, have you ever heard of Abu Musa? Ah, I knew you wouldn't have, because I hadn't either. It's this little island, it's four square miles, it's right in the middle of the Persian Gulf, and it is jointly claimed by both Iran and the United Arab Emirates, and they're disputing over it. Now, 
I don't know who the leader of the United Arab Emirates is, but I know the guy on the Iranian side is not exactly the model of stability. Now, friends, we're in Deland, Florida. We pay X dollars for gas, right? We have, we have savings and all those kind of things. If that guy in Iran, over whom you have no control whatsoever, decides to go off the reservation and send troops onto that island, do you know what's going to happen to your monthly gas bill? Do you know what's going to happen to your stocks? You don't have any control over that. Zero. So don't put your hope in that. What do you put your hope in? Not in your control, but in God's. In your Father's control. That's our hope for the future. The hope of the Father-filled future is also control, but it's not our control. It's, it's in God's control. Friends, I want you to think about this. We stand under this cross. We celebrate the Lord's table today. And these things prove two things for us. One, our Father has already clothed us. He has already clothed us with his son. The reason you and I don't have to worry if we're in Christ this morning, and again, these are promises that, that only belong to those who are in Christ. So I want to urge you, if you're not in Christ, come to Christ. So these promises can be yours But my Christian brother and sisters, the reason you and I are freed up from worrying about what we're going to wear, what we're going to put on, is not because we've saved up enough money, not because we've become smart enough or planned enough. No, friends, the reason ultimately, according to Jesus, is that God has already clothed us in the robes of his son. Galatians 3.27 says, For All you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed or have with or have put on Christ. Robes of Christ's righteousness. Robes that are pure and washed. Robes, friends, that you did not toil for or spin. Robes that he toiled for and that he spun every single day of his life, in every moment of obedience and faithfulness to his Father on behalf of his people. A robe of perfect, unblemished righteousness that Christ spun and formed and wore until the bitter end when he was willingly stripped of that robe on the cross so that he might give us the robe that he had spun and that he had toiled for, a perfect robe, and so that he might wear on that cross the robe that we had toiled for and that we had spun in our sin and there to be judged in our place, wearing our clothes. He was exposed to what we had deserved Naked and unexposed. I mean, naked and exposed to to the judgment that we had earned on that cross. And and he willingly gave himself himself so that we might be covered in his robes of perfect righteousness. So that we would no longer be naked. So that we would no longer be vulnerable to the just judgment of God against our sins. 
The Father has already clothed us, friends. If you and I had eyes to see, if we could view ourselves, my Christian brothers and sisters, if we could view ourselves today through the eyes of the Father, we would see that we are even this day, right, already clothed in a perfect, unassailable, unfailing righteousness of Christ. And if we saw that to the degree we saw that and believed our Father for it, we would be freed up from worry. And the reason we don't have to worry about what we're going to eat for the next hundred years is not because we've saved up enough money and not because we've made all the right decisions and not because we're going to keep our nose clean, but it's because our Father has already fed us with the bread of life. And having done that greatest of things, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger, and he who comes to me shall never thirst. And bread is made through death, the death of the grain, the death of the yeast. It is through death that bread gives life to others. Jesus knew that when he called himself the bread of life. We have been fed with the food that will not perish. And friends, if we could see ourselves now through the eyes of the Father, if we could see our futures through the Father's eyes at this moment, the fullness, the richness, the abundance of everything that is already ours in Christ, we wouldn't worry about what we're going to eat tomorrow or for the rest of our lives on this earth because the Father has already fed us. You see, there are two ways to approach the future, friends. There's a fatherless way of approaching the future. And that will leave you in worry and insecurity. And then there's a father-filled way of viewing the future, which is what the table presents to us this morning. And that is a vision of the future that is full of security and stability. Oh, may we, may we live and view the future as the children of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you to correct our vision of ourselves and our future through your eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.